Welcome to That's Orgasmic, a podcast discussing the orgasmic and not-so-orgasmic moments of all things sex, relationships, and mental health. I am your host, Emily Duncan, and I'm a sexologist who provides online sex coaching sessions to help you cultivate sexual wellness. Today, I am joined with Emma St. John, who is a psychologist who is committed to building authentic therapeutic relationships and a space in which her clients feel supported in reaching their goals. Emma flexibly draws upon elements of evidence-based psychological therapies, including cognitive behavioral therapy and schema therapy to meet the unique and evolving needs of her clients. Emma has also completed specialized training in working with psychosexual difficulties, allowing her to provide psychological interventions to support clients experiencing sexual health challenges. So welcome to That's Orgasmic, Emma. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, I'm so excited to have you on here um, and all of your expe- expertise. Obviously, um, you're a psychologist and you've mm-hmm. done a lot of work in this space. So I'm super excited to have you on to talk to you. Yeah, I first... I guess I want to talk about sexual desire today. I think it's a hot topic. Um, Mm -hmm. Everybody has at least thought about it, I imagine, in their (laughs) lifetime. And there's a lot of conversations around sexual desire. Mm -hmm. And obviously a lot of individuals struggle with sexual desire in that um, they especially think it's either too high or too low. Um, They want a higher sexual desire or they feel like they're not meeting their partner or partner's sexual needs um, or like you know, there's something wrong with them because they don't yeah. want sex as much as everybody around them. So mm. I would love to discuss this topic of reconnecting to our sexual desire as I know that obviously you're currently working in this area. So mm-hmm. to begin with, I just want to start with the basics. Are you yes. able to define what sexual desire actually is? Yes. Look, I can try because actually, even though it feels like something like that should be basic, defining sexual desire is actually a little bit of a complex concept. So when I talk about sexual desire, I'm referring to a person's interest or motivation to engage in sexual activities, whatever those kinds of activities may be. Um, So for some people, this can look like a clear feeling of lust or like a strong desire or urge to engage in sexual activities. But for other people, this is a much more subtle shift, almost like a subtle shift in mood um, or motivation. Um, And for other people, it might just kind of be like thinking about their motivations or their reasons for engaging in sex. Um, Some of the time sexual desire can be spontaneous. So it happens outside of the blue or in response to sexual kind of stimuli. And more often than not, though, sexual desire can be responsive, which means it emerges in response to sexual pleasure or arousal. Um, So it can be happening before um, in response to sexual stimulation, but then also in an ideal world, we want to see the kind of desire where when sexual context starts, people want sex to keep going. Um, so it's like in response to, and then it provides like a nice feedback loop where people start to feel pleasure and then they want more. Um, 
does that definition make sense? I know it's a bit of a vague concept. <laughs> no, absolutely it does. And I love that you brought up the spontaneous versus responsive desire because I think a lot of people think of desire as just this one thing that there's no elements to it Um, and I would have loved to have been taught about that in my sex ed the responsive and spontaneous because it is just right it's so helpful and once you can Mm -hmm. finally understand the basic I guess building blocks of desire then you can work out okay this is how it's going to work work for me yeah we are like sold and told a narrative that there's like one type of desire that exists, this spontaneous out of the blue, see someone that you're attracted to or think about sex and just like want to rip your clothes off and start having sex, right? And so if where that's the only kind of image that we're given of what desire looks like, if we don't have that or that changes or we never had that, then it can leave lots of people kind of turning towards themselves and thinking, well, what's what's wrong with my desire? What's wrong with my level of desire? Um, so it's important to talk about the different kinds that can exist yeah yeah definitely and I guess that kind of leads to my next question which is what do you think about society's current perception of sexual desire um and particularly how high I guess society thinks that it should be yeah I mean we're given so many messages about what sexual desire should look like and then I think that then flows on to our understanding of how much sex we should be having or how much we should be thinking about sex and it's really difficult because in order to live up to these societal expectations um it's hard because they're changing all the time so there's different messages that are given to people who are from different sexes different genders different sexual orientations cultural backgrounds ages how long you've been in a relationship so even if we were just trying to play the game of keeping up with the expectations like it would be nearly impossible right like i don't Mm. know I think like maybe if I'm a a young um, woman, healthy, in a healthy relationship, able-bodied, I maybe sold the narrative that I meant to be desiring sex a lot and wanting it a lot. But that same level of sexual desire, if I was all of those things but living in 18th century England, would have been like characterised as like hysteria and I might Mm -hmm. have been, you know, called ill or called irresponsible. So it's like even the same level of desire shifts in how we're meant to interpret it over time and context. Yeah, absolutely. Context plays a massive role. And even just like, as like, as you said, going from country to country, gender to gender, able-bodied to like, you know, disabled bodies, like just, there's just such a broad range there. And Yeah, I know I've just found even just within my work, everybody just seems to think that we should be desiring sex more than what we do, yeah. um, often more than not. Like it's often more that than the other way of being like, I need to desire yeah. sex less. Mm-hmm. Yes. And do you get asked like the how often should I be having sex question a lot in your work? Yeah, yeah. yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's just like people think there's this magic number that is, you know, the right way. Um, and it's just, it's so not the case. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, we do kind of know the numbers, like the population norms, right? Like mm-hmm. people fill out the surveys, we've got like the census data. So we like know the numbers that exist, but I really, when clients and friends of mine push to know the numbers, like firstly, they can Google if they really want to know. But secondly, I feel like it decenters the conversation away from the kinds of characteristics of sex that may actually be more important, which for yeah, me would be absolutely. like pleasure and sexual satisfaction and Mm -hmm. I would be wanting my clients to move towards like a world in which 
they could have one night of sensual, amazing, satisfying sex a year rather than 52 nights of pretty average, unsatisfying sex. But Mm -hmm. on today's kind of success metrics, it feels like we're meant to preference the second option. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's very centered around penetrative sex. Like how often are you having penetrative sex? Not including any yes. of the other little moments throughout the day that are sensual or like the intimacy and all the other things that are also just so important. That is such a good point. Yeah. And it's probably very much like cis heteronormative yeah, penis and absolutely. vagina sex that is probably even on the questionnaire tick boxes that we're getting this data from it just yeah, doesn't absolutely encompass our new definitions of what sex no, sexual can, experiences should be yeah I can only imagine people who have filled out surveys who maybe have engaged in like outer play being like oh nope I didn't have sex this week because you know I only had a blowjob like I can imagine yeah. <laughs> yeah or people that have only like had solo sex that week or self yeah that week. yes like, oh my god yes like where is the tick box for that because that can be mm-hmm. sometimes people's most satisfying and enjoyable sexual experiences and that maybe is also a kind of part of the sexual desire that I didn't talk about previously is that wanting to have sex with yourself wanting to self-pleasure connect with your body sexually that is a whole type of sexual desire in and of itself that's really Mm -hmm. important to highlight. Yeah, absolutely. Have you found, at least in your work, that there is a certain, like, demographic that is most concerned with their sexual desire? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think sexual desire or sexual desire problems, which I define as people are experiencing a significant drop in their level of sexual desire for a number of months, which they find distressing so distressing to them for some reason so if we just think about the drop or the low sexual desire we know that around one in three adult women will experience that in their lives so about a third of the adult female population um so it's pretty significant and we also think it's the most common sexual arousal concern in like male population as well so across the board this is something that is really really common but I don't think gets talked about enough, especially with my clients with penises, because there's been biological and medical solutions like Viagra and mm-hmm. other kinds of things that can feel a little bit like a stopgap to that sometimes. But actually those solve an arousal problem, not a desire problem. They give erections, but they don't want people to have sex. So it's kind of like this gap in our market and gap in the understanding of some of the common concerns that people have. So it's one in third adult women, but actually importantly, it's not one in third adult women have low desire and are distressed by it. So it's actually one in third of the one in third of women (laughs) meet the criteria for something we call like, you know, female sexual arousal disorder or having low desire and being really distressed by it. Um, And that gap is important to highlight because it suggests that People can experience low desire, sometimes even lifelong low desire or changes in low desire and not find it distressing. Be okay with it. Um, And I want to be the last person to come along and say, just because there's diversity of sexual experiences, these parts of the kind of spectrum are pathologized and they have a label and a diagnosis and a disorder. Um, I'm concerned with the kinds of sex lives that people find distressing and want to change. So It's a subset between the subset of people that find it distressing. I think that's important to differentiate because obviously, you know, there's people who are asexual and people who just, you know, they're completely happy to not desire sex. It's obviously the 
I guess what we're talking about today, the people who find it more distressing um, and who are wanting to reconnect with that sexual desire. Exactly right. Yeah. These are people that want to want. They miss wanting. Um, And as you said there, there's also so many context dependent things like uh, I could be working with partner A who wants to have sex once every six months and partner B who wants to have sex once a week. And in that dynamic, partner A is the person that's labelled often as having the desire problem. Um, whereas if they broke up and partner A started dating partner C, and partner C wanted to have sex once a year, all of a sudden partner A would be the higher desire partner and partner C might, you know, say, come and see me and say, I've got the low desire problem. Mm-hmm. So a lot of these things we're talking about differentials between partners or different relationship structures and discrepancies that generate distress but Mm. on top of the kind of differential that can create distress the kinds of people that I see that find low desire most distressing are the people who have high expectations around what their sex drive should look like so people that have really been told the narrative that we were talking about that we should be having sex x amount of times understandably when they compare their own experiences to that people can turn towards themselves and think that there's something wrong with them which can be distressing other kinds of people would be um if they've got a history or kind of co-occurring depression or anxiety at the Mm -hmm. same time yeah um generally the longer that the low desire has been going on for people find more distressing um if in addition to the low desire they're experiencing their sexual contact as not pleasurable. So that the sex that they're having, if they're having it, kind of sucks. Um, And then finally, often one of the most distressing things is when people can't, like, point at a specific thing in their environment and say, like, that's what's causing my low desire. So many people would experience low desire after, like, a really, really big stressful life event. Like, you take on a big project at work, you have an experience of drop and desire. But if that person is able to say, like, okay, my desire has dropped significantly, but I'm pretty sure it's tied to this specific context. I'm sure it'll go away. That's generally less distressing than people who feel like their drop in desire has come out of nowhere because that's when they start to worry, well, what if it never changes? Mm, no, absolutely. And I guess that, um, I guess when we haven't been taught about it and then also being given the resources to be able to work through that or even just identify what's going on in your own life and have that awareness of how that's impacting your desire like obviously that's going to be distressing for people and leads I guess to the next question which is we've touched on I guess throughout this whole Mm. conversation so far is what impacts our sexual desire yeah like Almost everything. Yeah, I was going to say everything. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, So if we break it down into different factors, we might have like physical factors. So some of these things might be like fluctuations in hormone levels. So like um, during pregnancy or postpartum or perimenopause, menopause, um, those can significantly shift our levels of desire. Um, certain medications, even um, antidepressant medications, especially SSRIs, um, mm. hormonal contraceptives, they can also have a pretty significant shift um, in people's level of desire. Um, but I think, interestingly, maybe specific to people 
who are transgender or are kind of gender non-binary and pursuing gender affirming treatments that kind of help their biological body match up with their gender identity, they may find really wonderful results of things like hormone replacement therapy or things like bottom surgery in terms of helping ease their dysphoria, feel more comfortable in their body. But those things can also have pretty significant effects on the sexual response cycle. So giving someone testosterone often increases someone's level of sexual desire, uh, but blocking testosterone and adding estrogen um, tends to dampen or subside that level of sexual arousal. So we have things like those medications that can be really life-saving um, and other kinds of treatment like antidepressants or hormonal contraceptions that are pretty necessary. Um, but you're walking this kind of like, it's a bit of a double-edged sword where while it may be helping with one thing, it's got this unfortunate side effect of dampening desire. Yeah. Mm. Mm, definitely and I feel like especially with things like hormonal contraception it's not something that's talked about especially when you're given that script especially if you're a teenager for instance mm. and you've been given that script it's not even a conversation it's not even brought up that how that could even impact your sexual desire exactly right and like I know for a fact that I worked with clients who are seeing really good like results or from say like an SSRI medication for their mood but they stop because Six months down the track, they haven't had an orgasm since they started or they haven't been able to maintain an erection since they started. Um, and then they, I just don't know if people are kind of reporting back to their GPs or their care providers the extent to which the medications are impacting on their sexual functioning. And so then they stop yeah. taking the medication um, because it's a wonderful thing. They're trying to prioritise their sexual well-being. But it, it does kind of give me, you know, a moment to pause and think about, gosh, I wish there was medications that could do all the good stuff um, without all these side effects. Yeah, mm, I know. It'd be amazing to have a world where we could just have, you know, medications that do their job and that's it. They don't leave any and side effects it. and <laughs> affect anything else. Exactly. Maybe we'll live to, to see the day, but not today. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um, <laughs> in addition to the kind of physical things, we've got maybe some relational dynamics that can affect mm -hmm. desire as well. Um, so whether or not kind of someone's in a new stage of their relationship where there's lots of that hot and heavy spontaneous desire or if someone's been together for 20 years so it's more of a, um, you know, you've got to stoke the ember a little bit to have that spark again. Um, or if there's relationship conflict or lack of communication or lack of emotional intimacy, all those things can have flow and effects to just, how much people are experiencing pleasurable physical contact with each other, which we know affects someone's level of sexual desire as well. And then as a psychologist, I'd, I'd be remiss to kind of not talk about the psychological aspects of desire. I mean, I think depression and anxiety have significant flow and effects to desire. Like one of the core Diagnostic characteristics of major depressive desire is this thing called anhedonia, which is a fancy way of saying getting bored or losing interest in the things that we used to like or find pleasure in. And sex is kind of one of the, the major things that can be affected by that. So that's why um, in addition to working with me and sexologists, I encourage all my clients to get like a physical workup done. And if uh, kind of we're feeling like there are some markers that there could be some mood concerns or anxiety concerns to also go see a mental health professional or someone who's mm -hmm. got the experience of walking that line between sexology and psychology um, to see which parts of this might be like purely sexological 
and which parts of this may be better explained for by like the consequence of a mental health concern yeah mm, definitely and I think that's when like a multi-disciplinary disciplinary oh my gosh get my words out a multidisciplinary <laughs> approach is so important because you know you can't just I don't want to use the word fix but you can't just I guess address one thing necessarily with one provider and expect it to to address everything like everything is so complicated and especially when you look at certain things say like I know vaginismus we've Mm -hmm. got the psychological side the physical side and there's so much where you can go from the doctor the physio to the psychologist to the sexologist Mm -hmm. like it's just so important to I guess have that holistic approach so that we are addressing everything and we able to get the best outcome possible I completely agree yeah and it's it's difficult, right? I'm sure in your experience as a sexologist, we're often one of the last care providers that people have come to on that journey. Mm-hmm. They'll start at a GP, they might go to their, their gyno or their you know male sexual health clinician, and um, then they might see a PT, then they might see a psychiatrist, then they see a counsellor before all the way they kind of come to us at the end. And um, yeah, I think it would look different if um, there was a way that we could all work together um, as a circle because unfortunately there just really isn't that many public health teams where there can be that multidisciplinary team around Mm. sexual functioning at least in Australia yeah yeah no I agree and I've found that with clients it's often like they'll write to me like this is my last resort and it's like it shouldn't be the last resort this should be something that people are aware of and have access to and that doctors are referring to and it's, you know, it's not this last thing where they just feel like they've got no hope left and if this doesn't work, well, then, you know, they're forever going to have to live like this. Yeah, yeah. And if we're thinking that kind of one of the things that contributes to low desire or one of the things that keeps low desire going is some of those catastrophic thoughts about what this means for yourself and your relationship, Um, then the process by which people have to seek help enforces that sense of this is going to be so hard to fix this is going to be so expensive to fix there must be something really wrong with me if this is my seventh doctor so even you know just the the way that people have seeked care in the past is accidentally reinforcing some of these beliefs which make it worse it's so frustrating yeah Mm, absolutely I obviously want to touch on how to begin to reconnect to our sexual desire Um, and obviously that is a massive question Um, (laughs) but I guess yeah like as a starting point what would you recommend for us if we're wanting to reconnect to our desire? Yeah Um, I think the most maybe most important thing that comes to mind at the start with is to think about chronic stress Um, so the amount that we have to to hold and the amount that is on our cognitive load day to day. Um, so in addition to all those factors I talked about before, one of the most common things I hear is that while people are having sex or maybe they're getting ready for bed and thinking it could happen that night, a part of their mind might be thinking about sex, but like 80% of it might be thinking about what to put in the kids' lunchboxes tomorrow or like a big work meeting or just like how tired we all are. Um, so thinking about how much chronic stress we're all under and doing all the things that we know that we should be doing, exercise, sleeping well, um, 
managing our stress in the best ways that we can, not taking on too much where possible, is one of those unglamorous but pretty helpful ways to start melting, I guess, some of the layers around um, the things that keep sexual desire problems going. Um, Another thing that could be really helpful is to think about um, maybe even doing like some journaling around what are the kind of common anxieties or worries that pop up before sex Um, or when you're just thinking about sex, if sex isn't something that's happening for you at the moment and to see whether or not there are any kind of specific trends or patterns that you've noticed have evolved or changed over time. Um, And then if you feel like there are some that are kind of very much focused on um, past traumatic sexual experiences or things related to low self-esteem or low self-worth or body image, that would be a time that I think it would be really helpful to to bring in some outside professional support Mm -hmm. because those things can be really hard to to walk through alone and to carry the burden on their own yeah Mm, absolutely and I think yeah obviously looking at your lifestyle to start with and the stress because it's not often you sit and you think about okay how is everything in my life actually impacting me and then obviously how is that going to impact your sexual desire because you know if you've got stuff with work and then you've got kids and you've got to cook and you clean the last thing you want to do when you go to bed and you you know you want your eight hours of sleep is to then (laughs) you know be sexual um so I think that obviously is like is such a a great starting point I guess for those who do you think it's like once obviously you could identify, okay, maybe I'm, I'm stressed, I'm anxious, I'm having these thoughts around sex that, you know, now that um, even just, you know, anxious thoughts about sex, like, oh, my gosh, I'm, you know, I've got such a low desire, I'm not going to be able to get an erection or I'm not going to be able to orgasm and, like, you know, focusing on all of these mm-hmm. other things because you're already stressed and now you're stressing about yeah. the sex. I guess, do you have any advice? Obviously, you said journaling to start with to unpack that. Do you have any, Mm -hmm. I guess, further steps for, I guess, maybe getting back into our bodies and our our desire? Yes, definitely. So I I can't really give any specific advice on a platform like this, you know, obvious disclaimer, go seek registered health professionals. But what I would suggest is that we can use some of the skills that, mindfulness practices have taught us about how to manage stress how to manage anxious thoughts how to manage depressive thoughts and use those as a skill to translate into how to manage sexually anxious thoughts right um so mindfulness which is paying attention to the present moment curious curiously non-judgmentally on purpose is a practice that many you know, traditions in the East have been using for thousands and thousands of years. And westernized kind of medicine has only really secularized them and made them popular in the last hundred years or so. But we are seeing really, really significant, long-standing, reliable results that mindfulness practices have a really beautiful effect on reducing stress and anxiety, lifting mood. And that also has a really direct causal flow on effect with increasing sexual desire. So I would encourage listeners to actually not start with building in a mindfulness practice around their sexual contact, but actually just start in their day-to-day. 
So maybe that's having a look at some of the mindfulness apps, you know, that are available online or joining a mindfulness-based stress reduction course or a meditation course at a local community center um, and try and see if they can integrate those practices in their day-to-day life. So I run a course where we try and integrate mindfulness into bringing out and reconnecting to sexual desire but actually for the first four weeks of an eight-week course we don't really do any mindfulness in partnered sex or about sexual activity it's just about strengthening the muscle of paying attention to sexual arousal because more often than not i actually think there is levels of sexual desire and arousal that are there but these chronic anxious intrusive thoughts or the constant to-do list that we have gets in the way of us reconnecting to that. So if we can start to strengthen the muscle of noticing um, and then shifting our attention back to pleasure and arousal in our body, then we tend to see we create that nice feedback loop where all of a sudden sexual experiences start to become pleasurable again. And then we start to crave what we find pleasurable. So that would be some of my suggestions to not particularly start with sex, to start in life and then apply those same skills to sexual experiences. Yeah, and I love that. I think because when you're already anxious potentially about sex or about your desire, trying to then try something new within that space and then obviously going to have thoughts of oh my god like I can't keep my mind clear I can't keep my focus on that I keep thinking about this I'm doing it wrong because obviously when it comes to meditation so many people when they first start think they're doing a you know a a bad job because they're thinking about other things and they can't keep this this focus on their breath or whatever they're trying Mm. to focus on so obviously starting with that outside of the bedroom to get you know it's like it's almost like going to the gym it's something you've just got to incorporate to strengthen that muscle and it's such a beneficial thing to do anyway because it's going to impact positively not just on your sex life but most likely have a flow-on effect in all different areas because it's there's so much research out there to show how Mm -hmm. like impactful mindfulness is on so many different things exactly right yeah I mean, there's a reason we call it a practice, right? It's something that we have to practice every day. Um, Mm -hmm. And so if, you know, the 20 minutes sitting down and going full monk doesn't appeal to you, then I get clients to integrate just moments of mindfulness into their day. So that's sitting down and eating a meal with no podcast, no Netflix, no work, just tuning into the sensations of eating. It might be the next time that you're in a workout class Pause your music for a moment and just tune in to the kinds of sensations of shifting in your muscles. Um, You can do things like mindful body scans where you shift your attention and your focus to different areas of your body. Um, My one kind of qualm with mindfulness scans, like body scans that are on the internet, is that they will direct people to pay attention to every single part of their body except for the genitals. Like the genitals are like such an ignored part of body scans, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Oh my, I've I've never, like, I've never thought of that. I've done so many, like, meditations. I always use the Headspace app, but they always brush over the genitals. I think there's only been maybe one or two that I've done, but they've been specifically for reconnecting to your like desire. All the others just brush over it. Exactly right. They go like thigh, buttocks, 
stomach <laughs> they'll go yeah. everywhere but mentioning yeah yes yeah. so what oh, i would suggest mm -hmm. is you're using these you know wonderful free apps or youtube things insert your own part of the meditation where you focus directly on noticing sensations in your genitals because if you think about it, often the only times in our day that we may notice a sensation in our genitals is like, I don't know, friction while getting dressed, um, wiping while going to the bathroom, pain if you experience pain, and maybe that's it, right, mm -hmm. if we're not experiencing a level of sexual arousal. And so our brain isn't tuned to pay attention and have awareness to that part of the body. And if we're kind of talking about someone with a vulva where there isn't as many physically or visually obvious signs of arousal as there is with someone with a penis, then it's even more important for people with vulvas to pay attention to the less subtle but no less pleasurable ways that our bodies ignite to tell us that we're aroused. Mm, definitely. And I think there's definitely... I guess a gap in that space where obviously a penis owner has been taught that if they look down and they've got an erect penis, I'm aroused. Whereas yeah. for vulva owners, it's just like, you know, maybe if you're, if you're wet, but then obviously there's non-coordinates. So lubrication doesn't actually mean that you're aroused. So it can be so tricky to actually know, like, how do I know if I'm aroused? And if you've never spent that time to really mm -hmm. sit with yourself and, you know do body scans or look in the mirror and see what it looks like when your genitals are aroused it would be yeah. it's really difficult to actually to know that yeah it is so difficult and that's why we know that with penis overs there's a reduced amount of genital non-concordance so generally when and this is you know there's exceptions to this rule but if someone has an erection they're viewing sexually relevant stimuli they want to have sex they can kind of look at their erection and feel their erection and be like cool i am turned on so we their objective measures of sexual arousal that their, their penis matches their subjective level of mental arousal the amount that they would subjectively rate that they felt turned on they often go side by side with vulva owners there can be a lot more genital non-concordance their vulva their kind of level of lubrication, their level of erectile tissue swelling and throbbing can actually be pretty significant before someone will subjectively recognize that they are turned on. What mindfulness exercises have been shown to do is reduce the level of non-concordance. So we're able to actually notice when our body is giving us those same signs. Um, and when our level of sexual arousal may have been objectively suppressed because some of those physical factors that we talked about it's even more important that we cultivate an awareness of the arousal and desire that remains yeah mm, yes definitely what do you think about I guess context and sexual desire because I know for some people as soon as you tell them all right sex is off the table you, could, you know you're not having sex this week or for two weeks all of a sudden there's this sexual desire and they, you know, they, they're wanting to have sex um, because mm -hmm. it's, you know, that context has changed. Yeah. Yeah. I think it points so much to how much of a mood killer obligation to have sex is, mm -hmm. right? Um, or how much of, you know, it can hit people's brakes to feel like they have to have sex. 
So yeah, often, you know, as in sex therapy, we will ban <laughs> sex um, for periods of time to help relieve people of those expectations that they have to be doing it for certain amounts of time or at different times and to get people to engage in ways that feel like they're aiming for sensuality and connection rather than explicit sexuality. So yeah, context is really important. Having people be free to enjoy the level of sexual stimulation that they want rather than feeling like they've got to go towards a very goal orientated reason for having sex. Um, even the sexual triggers that people find that elicit desire for them can change over time. Like a classic example is like um, a young like woman with breasts may find nipple stimulation to be highly pleasurable in their early 20s. And then say they go on to have children, they're breastfed, um, and then their partner tries to do that same exact stimulation to them. But all of a sudden the context around what that means has shifted pretty considerably and that could be confusing for the partner they're like you liked this when you were 25 and that can be confusing to them because they're like i thought i was meant to like this so we need to also be flexible with that the sexual triggers that we're using to turn us on can shift and change over time and that's not a failure of us that's just a shift in context Mm -hmm. and it shows the importance of constantly checking in with yourself and what you're finding arousing and how it's feeling and with your partner because obviously the way you have sex in that first year with your partner is not going to be the same 50 years later or any time like it can change so often so I think obviously communication I mentioned it literally in every single podcast episode but (laughs) I think it's also really important because then if you're openly communicating then also we'll link back to sexual desire because obviously there's going to be times throughout our life when our desire goes up and down and obviously if how we're enjoying sex is changing if all of a sudden it's you know we're not enjoying things we were before obviously your desire is not going to be the same if your partner or partners keep trying to have sex in the same way that they think is yeah it's pleasuring you exactly right the amount that people are enjoying sex the amount that they rate that they're satisfied significantly affects how much they will desire it in the future right Mm -hmm. like when was the last time that you ever craved food that you didn't like right like like we only crave the things that we like right yeah (laughs) like i'm not looking for things that the last time i had i hated so Mm -hmm. it's important for us to think about sometimes low sexual desire is a problem sometimes low evidence might low desire might be evidence of like good judgment Mm-hmm. Like we're not meant to like, like things if they're not pleasurable. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. yeah, sometimes we've got to yeah, think about true. actually the sexual content itself. What can we do to improve that? Then let's mm-hmm. see what happens with desire. I think that's a great way for people to look at it too, is being like, okay, let let me use this as a moment to reflect on how I'm having sex at the moment. Is this what I actually want it to look like? And, and, and am I enjoying that? Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's there's a you know a, an issue or something like you know going on a problem with them. Um, exactly. Yeah. 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 Do you have um, I guess any other tips that you think is important to touch on when it comes to reconnecting to sexual desire? Mm. I think maybe a nice exercise that people could try to kind of walk mm. the line between mindfulness outside of sexual contact and then bringing it in is an exercise 
that we do is that we'll get participants to um, use a sexual aid of some kind. So, for example, reading some erotica or using a vibrator or, or something else like that for around two to three minutes and then stop and then lie down and just notice what is happening in your body. Use that as like the body scan exercise where you are shifting your attention to every single different part of the body, feeling really neutral but curious and observant over what is happening. There may be signs that your body is turned on that you never even recognized as being part of your sexual response cycle. People might notice that their breath changes or they feel flushed or their heart starts kind of beating in a different way. And all of those things might have been lost if the ways that we're looking for am I aroused or not are kind of contained to what's in our pants right Mm -hmm. so maybe that's something you can try to to cue into the signs of arousal that are still there they just need they're kind of waiting to be reconnected to and and waiting to be observed in a new way Mm -hmm. would you recommend obviously you do your two or three minutes do a body scan would you recommend then going back doing another few minutes body scan or is it like a once-off just so the listeners, I guess, know how yeah. to engage with it? Yeah. I would say you could probably do multiple rounds, right? Mm-hmm. But the goal isn't that you get yourself to orgasm or you get yourself mm-hmm. to ejaculation. The goal is that you notice the signs of arousal. If you're doing like a, a comprehensive body scan, we'd be saying it might take, you know, 20 to 40 minutes to really scan through the body so it would be interesting to see what it would be like if you tried to do that once a day every day for seven days um how much could you notice about how much your body comes alive in response to sexual stimuli that you didn't know at the start and then you could maybe flip it do a body scan for 20 minutes and then try and do some kind of partner sex with your partner or some stimulation with yourself. Notice how your body goes from neutral to being aroused um, and to see and witness every different stage of that sexual response cycle for yourself. It's going to be different for everyone. It's going to be different mm-hmm. every day to mm-hmm. get curious about what it's like for you. Mm, yeah. I love that and I think that's definitely a great exercise that honestly I feel like everybody should do just to get in tune with their bodies Um, because it's obviously something we're not taught taught to do Um, and regardless of whether you're having difficulties or not I think it's such a just a great skill to have and you know something really important for us to to touch on. Um, Yeah is there anything else within this topic that you think um, you'd like to touch on? think if people are interested in learning more about how mindfulness can be integrated then they should really follow the work of a wonderful researcher and clinician called Lori Brotto um she is the you know the better sex through mindfulness pioneer that's the name of her book that's the name of like her, <laughs> her life's purpose and it is truly wonderful the work that she has done um so her book better sex with mindfulness and then the workbook that's come out recently is an incredible resource and it has all the step-by-step kind of um instructions for the exercises that i just talked about um and it is on her work and her group program that she's conducted clinical trials on a number of different client populations that i feel really lucky to be able to to help clients with now so if you like what you've heard today (laughs) I think it will be a really nice next step yeah 
Yeah, and now obviously you are running your own program. So I'd love to hear a bit about that, especially if there's, I don't know if you still have spots available, but if there's anybody mm-hmm. listening who would be interested in participating, are you able to just yeah, tell us a bit about it and the participants you're looking for? Yes, of course. So it is a eight-week mindfulness-based cognitive behavior therapy program for women who are struggling with low desire. So this is not people who are okay with their level of sexual desire. It's people who are noticed a significant shift or have always had low desire and are wanting to want again, are wanting to feel sexually connected again. And so I work with adults um, um, of all genders, sexualities, cultural backgrounds. Um, But this group in particular is for people who identify as women and with a very expansive definition of what that means, including cis women, trans women, non-binary fin folk, people who have received some kind of gender affirming interventions and none at all. Um, If you identify as woman, you're an adult and you have low desire and you want to change that, you are welcome. Um, It goes for eight weeks um, and we follow the the mindfulness-based cognitive behaviour therapy program that's been clinically evaluated to be really, really effective for increasing relationship satisfaction sexual satisfaction and reducing anxiety and rumination about sex. Um, So it is predominantly based on the work of Laurie Brotto, but I'm really excited to bring it to the practice where I work, which is called King Street Psychology Clinic, uh, which has a particular focus on working with gender diverse folk. So um, it's welcoming for all kinds of um, genital structures and gender identities um, because I really do believe that we are more similar than we are separate. Um, So I'm hoping it's a welcoming and affirming space for everyone. So to find out more about the group, you can go to King Street Psychology. We'll have rolling intakes throughout the year, so you can just register your interest. Um, And if a group doesn't sound like you, you don't have eight weeks to commit or you're not in Sydney, you can reach out to me at emasinjian.com.au and see the practices I work out, get some individual sessions as well. Yeah, amazing. And I'll link um, all of the like websites, everything in the show notes so everybody can easily access that. Now, Wonderful. the question I ask everybody is, what is something that is orgasmic to you? Yes, okay. I've been thinking about this because I was like, what even does it mean to be orgasmic? And for me, you know, I maybe I approach things with this mindfulness lens in which I think it means I'm grounded in the body, I'm in the present moment, and, like, what's more orgasmic than feeling just, like, completely swept away in the senses? Mm -hmm. So I think for me that would be, like, moments where I feel really turned, like, alive by my senses. So, like, I don't know, biting into, like, a piece of fruit that's just, like, perfect or listening to music and it's so beautiful and then, like, you hear the, like, the the swell of the chorus and then you get like goosebumps on your body things like that where it's like I don't know sometimes I feel like I live so much of my mind in my of my day in my mind and then I remember I have a body (laughs) so that feels yeah pretty orgasmic to me yeah yeah I love that it just made me think of like you know when you step outside and it's just like crisp fresh air and you breathe it in and it just reminds you like I'm a human, I'm, you know, I'm alive on this world. (laughs) Exactly. There is more to me than emails and notifications and work to be Mm -hmm. done. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, I love that. 
Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your knowledge. You've been, it's been super insightful and I know this is something that's going to resonate with a lot of people um, and I'm glad that we were able to, I guess, get them started on the journey of reconnecting with their sexual desire. Um, yeah, so thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. As always, Shaggers, please reach out with any comments, questions or stories either through my Instagram at That's Orgasmic or my email at emilyduncan at thatsorgasmic.com. Please subscribe whatever platform you still listen to this podcast and leave a review as I'd love to know what you're thinking. So thank you, Shaggers, and I'll see you next time.